0: I want you to imagine a scene with me. Uh, You're standing at the edge of a lake. The snow whips by you on the wind, stinging your cheeks. Uh, The sky above you, cloudy, is dead gray. Uh, The tall, leafless trees that you've just walked through are gray. And the barren ground beneath your feet that you're standing on is also gray. The lake in front of you is frozen over, a crisp, reflective surface that holds a secret, a secret you desperately wish you could know whether or not the ice would hold your weight if you were to stand upon it, or whether it would break and crack and you'd fall through and die and drown a cold death. And as your fingertips turn blue and you look off into the distance and your toes become harder and harder to move uh, from the hypothermia of beginning to set, and you see an orange glow on the other side of a lake, and you think to yourself, what am I going to do? And as you wipe some of the bits of snow that have frozen on your brow, you hear. The crunch, crunch, crunch of footsteps come up beside you. And you turn and you see a man who, like yourself, has little bits of snowflakes clinging to his face. And he looks at you and he says, follow me, I know the way across. And he begins to walk across the ice, stepping on it confidently. And you see him walking on the ice. And more importantly, you see that the ice holds his weight. So something changed when that man began to walk across the ice. And it wasn't the thickness of the ice, it wasn't the strength of the ice, the ice remained the same. It wasn't that you still had to cross the ice to get to the other side, to get to the fire to keep you warm. What changed is that now you knew the ice would hold you. You changed is that now you were assured that the ice would support your weight. And I bring this together because this psalm, and a lot of psalms in most of Scripture, are intended to be that man walking across the lake for you. They're intended to give you assurance and to give you hope. And so uh, I ask you to please stand and let's, uh, let's look at the psalm and I'll read it. <clears throat> so this is uh, Psalm 33. I believe it has in your bulletins, fully all printed out nice and neatly for you. So uh, you can look along. Psalm 33. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the heart. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations." Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. On those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. And we, we wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God, uh, we thank you for this night. We thank you for my brothers and sisters and my friends here um, just be in this time with us, help me to speak truth, help the words to fall on open hearts and we know that you are working in our hearts tonight, Lord. So we pray that your will will be done tonight and we offer this night up to you um, and hope it will be honoring and glorifying to your name, Lord, and we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Right, you guys can be seated. Uh, so if you'll notice, there is an outline in your bulletin on the third page, if the first page is the front. And this isn't exactly an outline for the sermon, but it kind of is an outline for the sermon, but it's an also an outline for understanding hope. So I'm going to be going through it, and you can kind of use that as a guide, and we'll pay attention. So like, take for example, we're going to start. What is your biggest problem? Um, what is it that really gets under your skin about yourself or about other people? What is that like a rash keeps coming back to bug you day and day again, that when you you just get exasperated about it and you throw your arms up and you're like, if only this were different, life would be great. If only I could change this one thing or get rid of this one problem, life would be grand. And now this could be, you know, all sorts of things. It could have to do with my personality. Maybe I wish I was a little bit more outgoing. Maybe I wish I looked a little better or had more friends. Maybe my roommate situation could be improved. Uh, Maybe I wish I had more money or more time or better grades. Or maybe it's other people. Maybe I just wish people would, you know listen to me, maybe I wish people weren't so naive or superficial, you know, there's lists could go on and on, but I think for each one of us, there are probably one or two things that when we hear it or we think about it, that's what keeps coming back to us, or what keeps nagging at us in our minds, and so I want to think about what is it, just maybe have that in my mind, think about what is it for you that's the biggest problem. And the reason I want to ask this is because our biggest problems don't leave us sitting content they like make a hole in our lives that desires to be filled, something that's lurking in our lives that we want a solution for. We don't want to just sit with a problem. We, cl- we crave a solution. We long for the problem to be fixed. Even if we don't know how to fix it, or we've given up trying, we've given up trying to mend the relationship with our parents, or we've given up trying to mend the relationships with our roommates, or to raise our grades, or to get on top of our finances, if we've given up, but we still desire a remedy. You still long for something to fix it. Uh, For example, one of my biggest problems right now, one of the things I face on a a daily basis that's been going on for months, is my uncertainty about what I'm going to do when I leave the internship in a few months. And uh, it comes up again and again, and when it comes up, I generally get very uncomfortable and anxious about it. get a bit unsettled in my stomach, and I don't like to be in that situation. And so because it's unsettling, and it's uncomfortable, and it's a problem, I'm hoping that someday soon I'll have clarity about what I'm going to do. And so I want to kind of bring this connection in, that when I have the problem of uncertainty about my life, and I look for and hope for clarity. So there's an immediate connection between a problem desiring a solution, and a problem desiring something for you to hope for. Um, take, for example, if you're... Problem is your GPA. What you're going to search for a solution or hope for is to raise your GPA. If your problem is a relationship, what you're going to hope for is that relationship to be reconciled. If your problem is that you're freezing to death, what you're going to hope for is a warm fire. So there's connection between what your problem is and what we're hoping for. And before moving on, I want to make it clear that when I say what we're hoping for um, in English, a lot of times when you use the word hope we get this idea of a, a very an optimistic, excited feeling. It's more of like a great big emotion that wells up. Like if you remember back to a, a birthday and you're lo- waiting for the presents, so like, oh, I really hope mom remembered, you know, I asked her for that new game or asked her for that new necklace and I really hope they were paying attention and they got it for me this time. And there's a present and I'm trying to shake it to see if it's what I wanted. And that's what we think hope is sometimes. We use the word as like, oh, I'm really hoping for this thing to happen that I'm excited for. Or we go to the other dimension and we say Hope is just kind of this blase wish, this like, well, I hope my team wins tonight, but you know, if they don't win, it's no big deal." or I really you know, I bought that lottery ticket with an extra dollar I had, and I hope I win, but you know, it's, it's, not, it's neither here or there. And this isn't the type of hope the Bible talks about. This is the type of hoping for that I'm speaking about is a longing for, a groaning for of our soul, this empty hole in us that longs to be filled. So I want that to be kind of clear right before I confuse things a bit by talking about what are we hoping in. And so now we've got two different types of hope. we got hoping for and hoping in. And I promise there aren't any more, you know, prepositions we could add of hoping up or hoping alongside of. But, you know, we got hoping for and hoping in and I thought that was enough for tonight. And I'll get to why there's this distinction I want to talk through. Um, this distinction of hoping in is a notion of of trust, of putting your faith in something, of relying upon something. It's the notion of, When you're stepping out onto the lake, you're putting your weight onto the ice, and you're hoping in its strength to hold you. That's really what hoping in feels like. Hoping feels like putting your weight in something and leaning on something, like sitting in a chair or stepping onto an uncertain ground. And that's what hoping in is, is a trust. So we have hoping for, which is a longing for the heart, and hoping in, which is a trust. And the reason I'm making this distinction and also bringing it together is because In the Hebrew and in the Bible, the words hope and trust are very intimately tied together. They're almost synonyms. They're used interchangeably. When we're talking about hoping for or hoping in something, you're talking about trusting in and longing for something. There's not a distinction here of, you know, this is, some hope is like a wishful thing and something down here is what you're trusting. It's like you long for something and you're hoping in something to get what you long for. And you're trusting in it. Um, So to kind of give some concrete examples, um, My problem is my uncertainty about my future and my hoping for, I'm hoping for clarity. I might put my hope in um, getting into grad school or getting a job. If I am hoping for um, to raise my GPA because my grades are kind of crappy right now, I'm going to put my hope in maybe my study skills, maybe the next test is going to have a great curve on it. Um, Maybe I'll just, you know, stay up all night. I'm putting my hope in maybe my ability to learn the material Uh, better if my hope to come back to this other metaphor if my hope is to get to the other side of the lake and that's what I'm hoping for because I'm standing here the fire is there I'm putting my hope in the strength of the lake to hold me the strength of the ice to hold my weight as I walk across it and so now I got this the first three points the fourth point will wait what do do hope look like the fourth point we're going to come back to uh, at the very end Um, but I'm going to go through this one time with it, one more example And that is, uh, we're going to look down at verse 16 and 17. Uh, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. The horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. And so, the reason I bring this up is because I want to talk about the Israelites. Now, the Israelites were great at thinking that their biggest problem was their enemies that were around them. For once, it was the Canaanites, and then it was the Philistines, and then it was someone else. Their problem was always those guys over there with the big swords and the pointy spears, and they were trying to kill us. And to be fair, these are like big problems. Someone comes at you with a sharp thing, and you're like, that's a problem. So that's their problem. And so what they're hoping for is to defeat the enemy. They're hoping to drive them away, to defeat them. They will leave them alone. And so what are they hoping in? And you can see kind of right from the text, and this plays in when you think of the history of Israel, they're thinking of armies, thinking of their hope is in strength, is in the horses and kings and the strength of their men. They're putting their hope in their military. And so you can see how this connects. This connects like if your problem is enemies trying to kill you, you're going to hope in your military for your hope for to drive them away. So it brings us all together again. And the reason I bring specifically into the Israelites, however, is because they let this hope, they let their problem get out of perspective. And there's something that happens when we let the problems in our lives grow too large in relation to what our real problem and our deepest problem is. So for the Israelites, they thought, they begin to see that the biggest problem was their enemies. And that was the thing that kind of consumed all problems. And that was just a big problem. It was the ultimate problem. And when it became the ultimate problem, they began to look to earth for ultimate solutions. So no longer was the army just a hope. It became the hope. And because it was the hope to solve their biggest problem, they rejected God as their Lord and King and instead looked to place their hope in an earthly God. And this is when we get Saul in uh, 1 Samuel. Where it says, When God speaks to Samuel, he says, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me as their king and sought instead an earthly king. And so this is what happens when a problem, Which we should respect problems, we should understand that they are real and true. When we start to see things as our ultimate problem, it gets out of hand because then we put our ultimate hope in things of this world. And so I say that because I think oftentimes we know, if we take a step back in a reflective moment, we know that our grades or our relationship with our friends or our family or you know, our personality, that those things aren't our ultimate problems. But we live in the day-to-day as if they are. And when we live in the day-to-day as if these are our biggest problems, we begin to hope in the day-to-day of solutions around us and in the world rather than in the proper place of where our hope which I'll get to. And so I want to keep that in mind of like, there's an idea that we need to keep our problems in perspective. We need the Bible to orient us to what our biggest problem actually is. Otherwise, we'll put our hope in things that will not hold us. And we can guarantee that they won't hold us because they're not answering the biggest problem. And this is kind of why verses 16 and 17 are absolutely certain that the king will not save, that the warrior cannot escape, that a horse is a vain hope and cannot save. They might be good for escaping from armies, but they're not going to save you from what is ultimately your largest problem. And so I, need, I think we need to turn and take the Bible seriously when it says what our ultimate problem is so that we can actually see what it says about what we're hoping for. Because if we don't see that we have a problem, we're not going to see that we need hope. So what is our problem? Um, here I turn uh, to Romans again. Paul does a great job with lots of things, and here he real names at home. <clears throat> so he says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So let that sink in, that description. Um, if you're new tonight, or maybe you're kind of new with this language, or you're new to Christianity, or, you're new, or you, perhaps you don't know Christ, this is um, might sound like a harsh description. It might sound like, wow, that's kind of really calling out things a lot worse than how I see them. But the Bible is clear in its diagnosis, and it doesn't want to pull punches in what the true problem, the true calamity of sin is. Because it's only can we can see the calamity of sin and the depravity of our human nature and how it affects us can we look for hope. And so we need to recognize that truly there is a huge problem here when no fear of God is in our eyes and we do not run, to, we don't run towards him, but we run away from him. And even for us who are Christian, we need to recognize and remember one that this was who we are, as Paul said before, as Paul said in another place, that when he talks about the types of sin, he says, "And that this is who we once were, even though no longer. Sometimes, yet we still live as if we were them. We still live as if we are under the rule of sin, as if we're bound by its, um, by its law, even though we're no longer. But we forget, and we forget who we are, and we forget our identity, and so we too go back to behaving this way. We too go back." to living and doing what is right in our own eyes instead of right in God's eyes. We, too, go back to turning away from God instead of seeking Him. We, too, instead of serving God and loving our neighbor, we rather seek and love ourselves. And so I really want to get home this, just the seriousness of the problem, the seriousness of the calamity of sin in our lives. Because it's only when we see that and we can eye it that we then turn and we can begin to see, well, why do we need hope? We have a problem, a serious problem the problem is the sin in our eyes in ourselves that we are not capable of solving because we're the problem. So where do we look for then for the solution? Where do we look for, for hope? And now when I was thinking about this, I came to the realization that I could either have, give a simple answer or a complex answer. And the simple answer and the complex answer are both good and true. It's just that the complex one would take uh, quite a bit more time to go through. And I thought about maybe an example of a diamond where you can study the different facets of the diamond. And you can study it Closely and under a microscope and in clarity discover, like, learn more and appreciate it even more. Um, But you can also look at it as if you were seeing the giant, the gem for the first time and simply behold its wonder and be awed by its beauty. And so it's for the second one that I would encourage you to keep in your hearts tonight. And I trust that God will provide many more times to kind of dig into, really flesh out what this is that we're hoping for. But tonight I just want to kind of state it simply and hope and move on from there to what we're hoping in. So what we're hoping for, what we are hoping for is the person of Jesus Christ, in whom is our salvation from our sin and from ourselves, in whom reconciliation with God is to be found, and in whom our hope for eternal life and glory are to be found. So it's not a what we're hoping for, it's a whom we're hoping for, and whom we're hoping for is Jesus Christ himself. And he is the consummation of all things. He's bringing things together. He is what, if we're a Christian, we know have saved us from our sin in the past and is also what the glory we're looking for in the end. And if you're not a Christian tonight, I'd encourage you to look at him because he is what can save you um, from the deepest problem of sins that you face in your own life tonight. And so now I want to turn with what <clears throat> this psalm kind of really looks at and focuses on, which is what do we hope in? Where Are we putting our trust in what's going to support our weight if we're hoping for Jesus, if we're hoping for a new life? And so this is, we get our first glimpse in verses 18 um, through 22 where it says, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name, May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. And so again, our hope is not just an absent thing. Our hope, what we are hoping and what we are trusting in is a person. We're trusting in the Lord himself and our God, in the creator of heaven and earth. And because of who God is, this is a sure hope and it's a confident hope. And that is, if there's one thing I think I want you to take away tonight is this, is that our hope for Jesus, our hope for salvation, our hope for everything in the world being made right and true and all the bad things being unmade, that that hope is assured because of who God is. And this psalm in the Bible is here to tell us who God is so that we can confidently hope in him. And how can I be sure of this? Um, I can be sure because the scripture tells it ourselves. We look at Romans 15, 14, it says, For whatever was written in former days, was written for our instruction that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And Hebrews 6.11 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full earnestness of hope until the end. This is the assurance of hope that Brittany was reading about when she was talking about Abraham. This was the assurance that it said, Yet Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. So Abraham was confident. He was sure. He saw his God. He knew his God, and God was able to, even in his, even in Abraham's barren age, to provide him with a son and provide him with um, the entire nation of Israel, which would number more than the stars. <clears throat> so, what we hope for in Jesus is assured by what we hope in. And this, coming back to that illustration, this is the difference from. Looking at, a, looking at an icy lake that we don't know if it will hold our weight, to seeing someone else walk across it before us, to see them step on the ice. And, they see, and we see it, and we're assured, okay, the ice will hold us as well. And this is the same thing when we turn and we look and we see who God is. We see his character. We see the way he has acted in history. We see what he has done for his people and we are now no longer trusting in a God that we know nothing about. We are trusting in a God who is real and who has revealed himself to us and whom we can see and trust because we see him. And this truly is where we get into the meat of this psalm. Um, so if you kind of look with me as I go through it, we start with verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right and true. Well, that's great news. That means we can trust his word. He is true. He is honest. He will do the things that he says. He is faithful in all he does. We can count on him. He's going to keep his promises. He's not going to back down. He's not going to change his mind when he says he will do something. The Lord loves righteousness and justice, and he will act accordingly. He won't be crooked and accept bribes. He's not going to yawn at evil in the world. He will make things right and just, and he's more committed to righteousness and justice in this world than we can ever be. And the earth is full of his unfailing love. It's saying that his love surrounds us, even if we don't see it or refuse to see it. And then it goes on to tell us how. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. He's talking here about creation, about just the power and majesty revealed to us in the fact that he created all that we know in existence, that he brought it into being; that the heavens declare his names, that the wideness of the world declares and the beauty of the world declares not just his power and majesty, but also his love for us. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the people of the world revere him, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. Again, just the power and majesty of his love in the creation of the world. But no longer, he's not simply a God who created the world. He goes on to say that the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. He's not some God that just put the world into being and set it into motion, but he's a God that's present and active and alive in the here and now. And this is how, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. So even as we see the world seems to us to fall apart, even in the midst of war and chaos and confusion, We can trust that the Lord is acting in ways. We can trust that He is still actively involved in this world, is not letting it fall apart, but is guiding it towards His purposes, which are righteous and true and just, as we have already seen. And then in verse 12, blesses the nation whose God is the Lord the people he chose for his inheritance. And here we see part of his plan revealed. We see that he has chosen a people for his inheritance. And we see this more fully in the New Testament when we come to Jesus Christ. We see that he has chosen the church, the saints, to be his people. And so we see part of the plan revealed to us. We see that he's working throughout history to bring a people to him, to bring a people for him. Verses 13 uh, from the heaven from heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He is observant and caring. He is not distant and removed. He looks on us. He watches us. He's not out watching butterflies sit in the park. But he's watching them and us as well because he cares about butterflies too. <laughs> he who forms the hearts of all. So not only is he powerful, not only is he majestic, not only is he observant and omnipotent and omnipresent – but he cares so deeply and passionately about each one of us that he shapes our hearts and he's intimately involved in our lives. And he, like a potter, shapes who we'll become and is in control of our destiny and how he will use us. And finishes, who considers everything they do. And this is just one picture in the many, many multiplicity of pictures available in the Word, in the Scriptures of who our Lord is, of who... Yeah, just of who he is, of who, what his character is, of his, how he is loving, of how he is powerful and righteous and gracious and just and true. And this psalmist is imploring you to take a look, not at an abstract God, not an abstract person that we don't know anything about, but a real God who has worked in history, who has moved mountains and moved nations for his purposes and for his love of you, and so that we can then trust in him, because we see this is a God that loves, this is an absent God, this is a God that cares, this isn't a God who set the world in motion and disappeared, but a God who is present. And that allows us to put our hope in him because we know that he's going to follow through on his promises. We've seen him follow through again and again and again and again. And I implore you for that fact to take advantage of the scriptures, to read the Bible, um, not so that we can have an optimistic, fuzzy feelings in our guts, not so that we can you know, check a list off a box and say, I read my Bible today, but that's so we can have this confidence that the Apostles in the Bible wants us to have, the confidence the Lord wants you to have, that you are assured in what you hope for, that it will happen, that you will see Christ come again, that he will come again, that all that is dark and evil will be swept away, and goodness and God will reign, that that will happen. He wants you to be confident that this is going to be, that it's more sure than the sun rising tomorrow, because God has promised it. And finally, I want that to bring us down to what hope do look like. And so that's, that's like a so question. What does hope look like in our day-to-day lives, in the day-to-day grind of school and work? What does hope look like? And kind of after reading and thinking and praying, the conclusion I've kind of drawn is that hope doesn't look all that exciting or radical or sexy. It's not anything out of the ordinary except in perhaps the way the Christian life is out of the ordinary. Hope looks like repentance from sin and turning away from sin and towards God. It looks like obeying his commandments and seeking first the kingdom of heaven. It looks like loving your neighbor as yourself. It looks like taking some time to read the Bible during the day or to pray to him, um, to thank him for what he's done and thank you for the the way that he's worked in our lives. It looks like Going to church or going to RUF or inviting a friend to church or into RUF. It looks like patience, kindness, honesty, humility. And I could go on and on. And the reality is that a life of hope is the Christian life, that the two are inseparable, that a Christian life, when we think about all the things that Jesus has called us to, that is a life that is grounded on the hope in God for Jesus. And we can live this life that He has called us to because this hope is assured. We don't have to worry about messing up and the hope getting tossed out the door and our results are like, well, I tried really hard but you know, I kind of messed up here and there. No, we don't have to worry about it. It's assured. We're able to be generous with our time and our resources because our hope is assured in the future. You know, we can be kind and merciful to those who are mean or cruel or mean-spirited because our hope is assured. And we can mess up. We can try to be as God has commanded us, and we can fail. Because our hope is assured. And it's not going to be taken away from us, even when we fail, even when we imitate Christ. Who the world forsook. And the world may forsake us as well when we imitate him. And that's okay, because our hope is assured. But one thing I want to note, or two things I want to note here. One is that hope Moves. It doesn't stand still. It's an actively engaging in this life of crisis. not a simply a stagnation, hide yourself in a closet and turn off the lights because if you just wait long enough, your hope's going to happen. It's something that runs towards the hope. When Paul speaks of running the race, like, I know some people like to run for fun, and that's a great thing, but he's running fast. Like, he's reaching for the hope that is ahead of him. He's running out for it. He's not just sitting waiting for it to come, but he's striving for it. And so that's, that's built into living a Christian life. That's built into honoring God as a striving for his honor and his glory in the hope that is to come. And then one final thing I want to note in particular, because this is a psalm, and because of how this psalm begins, um, one thing to note in particular is that hope looks like praise. Uh, verses 1 through 3, when it says, Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. is fitting for the upright to praise Him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to Him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. And it looks like praise, because praise ultimately is about who God is. And we can see that intimately. Like This is immediately happens as, the, God, as <clears throat> the psalmist declares and extols us to sing praise. He immediately then begins to speak, about who God is and tell us this is why we're praising. We're praising God for who he is because of who he is. And we're singing truth back to him. And it, is setting, it says that it is fitting for the upright to praise him. So praise is not conditional upon our spirits, on how we feel about the day, on whether we think we're a good singer or not. It's about who we are and who God is. And it says it's fitting for the upright to praise him And if you're united to Christ, then God has declared you upright. And it is therefore appropriate for your identity in Christ and the character of the Most High God and who He is that you praise Him, that there's this fitting together that is appropriate and righteous to honor God and say back to Him and honor Him for who He is and what He has done and remind ourselves who He is, what He's done, who His character is, and why we have assurance in Him. And so kind of wrap wrap this all together. The psalm and the rest of the scriptures is about helping us see that our biggest problem in life is our sin. That it's not, you know, the person next door who plays his music too loud. It's not, you know, my inability to get a date or my looking forward into the future and unknowing what I'm going to do or my grades. It's about our sin and our broken relationship with God. And our hope and our solution that God has provided is Jesus Christ, the person himself. And because of the great power of the Trinity, God is also what we hope in and trust in and put our weight upon. That will support us. It will get us to the fire. It will help us to be warm at the end of the day. And we can trust and hope in him because he is good and he is just and righteous and true and loving. And he is all the things that he says he is. And we can trust him because we have seen it and we remember. Um, Will you pray with me? (laughs) Heavenly Father, um, I just pray for assurance for those here um, who call you Lord and who worship your Son, that you will assure them that they are safe in your hands, that you will bring them into your glory and that while we are here on the earth, that you will continue to sanctify them and to make them more into the image of your Son. We thank you for this night, Um, and I pray for anyone here who does not know you, that their eyes will be open to the truth as the Word speaks it, as you say the truth of who we are and the truth of what our hope is and where we can place our true hope. And I thank you for that hope, Lord. I thank you for being who you say you are. I thank you for being a God that loves us and cares for us and has created all things and provides for us in all ways. And we trust this night, and we trust our going out from here with you, and we thank you, and we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior. Amen.